It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. The novelist Geraldine Brooks takes inspiration from, as she puts it, the skeleton of historical fact. Her meticulous research about real events gives her a starting point for rich, believable characters and unflinching critiques of the past. What are people so afraid of? You have to you have to have an honest appraisal of the past or you can't possibly understand where we are and where we need to get to. Her latest book, Horse, follows the story of Lexington, the greatest racehorse in American history, and his enslaved groom, Jarrett, in the tumultuous years just before the Civil War. Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Winter Words Conversation Series held by Aspen Words. Consider joining us in person this June at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Passes are on sale at aspenideas.org. In this talk, Brooks tells the audience how and why she chose Jarrett and Lexington to be the book's guides through American history. The pair travel the country winning at racetracks amid the massive injustice of racism and slavery. Their stories reemerge and intersect with the stories of characters living generations later, illuminating societal change alongside the persistence of racism. Washington Post book critic Ron Charles is a longtime fan of Brooks's writing. He interviews the author on stage about horse and the factors that led her to historical fiction. Here's Charles. I can't ski and I hate the cold. Uh, <laughs> but the moment they told me I could interview Geraldine Brooks, I was putting on my snowshoes. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me and thank you so much for being here tonight. Well, thank you, Ron. I have been a fan of Geraldine Brooks since 2005 when I read a galley of a novel called March. The moment I finished it, I immediately looked up her phone number (laughs) and, in violation of all book reviewing codes, called her (laughs) and told her how much I loved it. I think I was probably still crying at the time. I I must have seemed a little unbalanced. Uh, your, Your new novel, Horse, is incredible and just incredibly powerful. It's been a bestseller since it came out in June. Many of you have read it, but we are not going to have any spoilers in tonight's conversation because I know some of you are still looking forward to it. Okay? Okay. All right. I want to start by asking you about your own involvement with horses. Did you grow up with horses? <laughs> no, very much not. I grew up in inner city Sydney <laughs> and um, not, not a tremendous amount of equine activity there. Uh, also, you know, we didn't have a, a, any spare money when I was growing up, so horse rides and pony camps, that wasn't even in the out, outliers of my imagination. Um, the only horses we ever saw were the mounted police. <laughs> Um, and that was a mixed blessing because my mother would mortify me by getting the dustpan and running out into the road to see if she could score any manure for her rose bushes. (laughs) Do you ride now? Yes. So, um, what happened was, um, and I don't recommend this. I, 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 um, became horse crazy in my fifties. If you're going to become horse crazy, better you should do it at 5 or 15. (laughs) Um, But I I was at a writer's retreat, and it was in Santa Fe. And I I love animals. I've always loved animals. And, you know, I'm a huge dog person. And the horses were so beautiful on this ranch. And my room just happened to open right onto the corrals. And I was staring at these gorgeous Appaloosas and paint horses. And one of the wranglers said, you really like the horses, you should come for a trail ride. I said, I can't ride. And he said, you can. These horses know their job, they won't let you fall off. And so the next day I went on this ecstatic ride through the Arroyos and he, he's in front of me and he goes, let's pick up a canter. <laughs> and we did, and it was great. <laughs> so I got home and I was just thinking about how wonderful this was and sort of berating myself for having let this life opportunity to have a relationship with an animal slip by. And a young friend came over and we were talking about it and she looked out the window and she said, you've got a couple of acres here, you could have a horse. 
In fact, I could give you my horse. <laughs> a free horse. Is there a free horse? There's no such thing as a free horse. <laughs> uh, and that became painfully clear very quickly, you know. But I did, you know, I should have asked a lot more questions, but I started fencing half the property and turning the tool shed into stalls. And the next thing, you know, I'm looking into horse transport, transport because this horse was not close by. Oh, my gosh. This horse was in Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> but she was beautiful. And I know that because she was in an ad. And it was an ad for a fast-acting cream to treat vaginal yeast infections. <laughs> I, I don't know where to go from there. <laughs> uh, I... my, my Palomino gallops across the Mexican Altiplano and the voiceover says, something should be fast. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Did I mention I'm from St. Louis? <laughs> You started writing about horse racing, though, and this was oh, like well, your first journalism my job. job. Oh my God, this was this was. How did that happen? This is very misbegotten. I always wanted to be a journalist, <laughs> yes. and so when I went to college, I thought, "What do journalists write about? Politics. I'll study government. And what else do they write about? Culture. I'll study fine arts." And four years later, I graduated with a double major in these two subjects, and could tell you all about Hobbesian political theory and bicameral parliaments and the uses of tempera and quattrocento Italian wall painting. And they hired me. Two. And they sent me to the sports department to assist the racing riders. <laughs> <laughs> there are some really exciting races in this book. I mean, exciting as you describe them. Well, you know, so the thing happened, you know... As I said, I love animals, and I had to go to every horse race in Sydney, which was a tremendous number of races. And my job was to just get details on every horse in every race. Tons and tons, reams of little facts. And, um, but the trouble with going to every race is you see a lot of catastrophic injuries. Mm. And I had PTSD. I never wanted to see another race again. And then I'm riding about a racehorse. Um, and I have a lot of really serious questions about um, the misuse of equines in current racing. But racing in the 19th century was completely different because it was an agrarian society. So everybody had horses and everybody understood horses. And thoroughbred horses in those days were bred very differently to how they are now. They had to do something quite extraordinary. A race in those days was three or four miles. Four-mile race is like four Kentucky Derbies, I think. You know, we think of that as a long race. And they did, not only did that, but they did it two or three times because it would be a heat match race. Wow. So they were incredibly sturdy. So they had to have not just incredibly blistering speed, but also sturdy bones. And so um, when you look at Lexington, he had massive bones in the way that thoroughbreds today have been bred not to have, and that's why so many of them break down. So let's talk about this horse at the center of your book. Lexington, as you say, is, was an actual historical animal. And uh, I'm, I'm curious about how you came upon this horse through its bones, which seems like a very unusual event. How did that <laughs> serendipity take place? Well, this was really lucky, because my free horse was racking up a lot of bills, and... <laughs> And, and I, as I admitted, I was horse crazy. So all I wanted to think about was this horse. And you can't just have one horse, I learned. <laughs> no. So we had a second horse. <laughs> and then we had the farrier and we had the horse masseur and the saddle fitter and, you know, the horse intuitive and the riding lessons. And there's a lot of money going out. And because I'm only either in the riding ring or on a trail or in the barn or at the orthopedist, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
not a lot of writing is getting done. Yes. But then I got invited to a, a lunch at um, Plymouth Patuxet Museum, and oh. they'd been super helpful to me when I was researching Caleb's Crossing. Okay. And, uh, and it was a donor lunch. So I'm there to talk to the donors about how great the museum is as a research um, institution. Right. But at the same lunch and way down the table was a guy from the Smithsonian and he's in charge of all the affiliated museums of the Smithsonian and he was regaling his donors with the story of how he'd just delivered the skeleton of the most famous racehorse of the 19th century from a forgotten corner of an attic in the um, Natural History Museum in Washington to be the centerpiece of a huge exhibition on the history of the thoroughbred in America because this horse was not only the greatest racehorse but the greatest stud sire in American history. And then he gets to the bit about the Civil War. And at this point, my donors have not a scintilla of my attention anymore because <laughs> I'm leaning across the table. And You've not I, heard of this horse before. No, and luckily neither had anybody else, which is... <laughs> <laughs> It's a sweet spot for a novelist. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, researching a skeleton as a key to understanding an animal seems analogous to the process of historical fiction, doesn't it? I mean, you're, you've got the bones, and then you sort of stretch the skin, and then you imagine the muscles. You're so good at this. <laughs> <laughs> that is so great. I, no, I, I want you to I've comment on that. I've been stealing from this guy. <laughs> I've been stealing from this guy for a long time because when he wrote the most wonderful review of March, he had this line in it that was so beautiful, describing Bronson Alcott's significance uh, in American intellectual history. He said, "If Thoreau and Emerson were the shooting stars of American idealism, Bronson Alcott was the dark matter from which they drew their energy." So I've been quoting him ever since, and now I'm going to use this too. <laughs> But yeah, that's Thank a perfect you. metaphor. Thank you. Um, <laughs> you were such a successful journalist writing about true things. What, what drew you to the dark side? <laughs> why, why did you decide to start writing historical fiction? You could have written history too, but you write historical fiction. Why? Uh, I have the Nigerian secret police to thank for this. <laughs> Uh, I'd, I'd been a journalist for many years. I loved it. I felt very privileged to have that role. Um, I was with the Wall Street Journal and uh, bearing witness to the consequences of American foreign policy as it plays out in people's lives all over the place. And, and also, you know, having a license to look into crazy stuff. And the crazy stuff I was looking into in Nigeria was Shell Oil and their role in the suppression of a peaceful protest movement. Um, in the area where they had been extracting oil for 35 years and the subsistence farmers had finally said, we've got no schools, we've got no hospitals. Our, our lands are getting polluted and our wells are poisoned. And Shell called on the mil military of the very corrupt dictator, Sani Abacha, called the soldiers in and they killed them. And... Uh, and one of their activists had come to New York and told this to the foreign editor of the Wall Street Journal. And honestly, when he outlined the, the allegation to me, I didn't buy it. I thought no major oil company would do that. And, you know, Shell doesn't behave that way in the first world. Why would they? Anyway, so I went to check it out. And sure enough, you know, total evidence of everything, uh, even worse than had been described, really brutal. And... Um, and so, as you do, as a journalist, after I got all the uh, evidence from the um, Agoni farmers, I went and knocked on the door of the military, <laughs> and that didn't go well. <laughs> um, they handed me over to the secret police, and they threw me in the slammer, and I had no idea how long they were going to keep me, and I was thinking of all the journalists that had been kept for eight years or five years, and I thought... Holy cow, you're 39 years old and you forgot to get pregnant. <laughs> but luckily they um, deported me after three days. And I went home and greeted my husband, Tony, with great enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> and our son, Nathaniel, was born the following year. And I realised that I had a problem in that I didn't want to go off on these long assignments with 
open end to places where you might get thrown in the slammer or worse. And so I needed a new gig. And nobody was thinking of me to go and sit around a swimming pool with George Clooney. <laughs> they would only call me to say, do you want to go, you know, to um, Afghanistan or back to Bosnia? And Jeez. I said, no, I have to nurse my baby at three yeah. o'clock. I can't be doing that. <laughs> and so uh, this story that had been banging around in my head for years about what had actually happened in a village in... Um, the Peak District in England when bubonic plague came and the villagers took this unique decision to quarantine themselves rather than spread the infection. And I've been thinking about it a lot ever since we stumbled on that village by chance during a hike. And, um, and I thought I'd write it as a narrative history, but I couldn't because the people of the village had been illiterate lead miners and shepherds and there was not enough. There wasn't... There was this extraordinary, as you said, skeleton of fact that they had made this decision, they'd lived with it, what had happened in the village, but what it was like to be them, there was absolutely nothing. So you have to then take the leap and engage with it imaginatively. That's how it began, yeah. writing novels. Wonderful. And lucky for me, somebody wanted to read it. And so many, that, many that was a people. win. I understand the Lexington's bones were rediscovered, essentially forgotten in the Smithsonian, because of an exhibit about the stopwatch? So, yeah, this... The, what? The, the horse was so fast, and the competition with the other great uh, thoroughbred of the, of the day was so intense, and people were so intrigued by these match races between the two of them. They had to divide time into fractions of a second mm -hmm. to clock the difference between these two great horses. And people wanted their own stopwatch because they wanted to be able to go to the track and do it. So they developed the mass-produced stopwatch in order to track the competition between Lexington and LeConte. That is just one of hundreds of bizarre scientific discoveries woven through this book. <laughs> and, and the more bizarre, the more true they are. Uh, reading Horse, I was reminded again and again of Richard Powers and the way he draws us into these arcane scientific fields in a way that makes us feel like we understand them. But that illusion only comes from an author who really does and does the work and, and, and can explain it in, for us in a way that gives us that impression. Can you tell us about the research into anatomy and other scientific fields that you did in the Smithsonian? Well, that, that, the fun thing about um, being a journalist and being this kind of novelist is that you, you have a license to get up in people's business. <laughs> and so I didn't even know there was such a thing as an osteoprep lab. I had never heard of this job. What a cool job. What is it? So just say, just say an elephant dies at the National Zoo and they want to compare the effects on an elephant's um, skeletal structure of being in captivity rather than being in the wild. Mm -hmm. So they take that elephant corpse, which is a considerable undertaking, and they bring it to um, suburban Maryland to the osteoprep lab of the Smithsonian, and they wait for it to rot, <laughs> which is very fragrant, as you can imagine. And then when it's rotted enough, they put it in the bug room. So they've got the every, every piece of scientific equipment you could think of, but they've never come up with a better way to prepare bones for scientific study than to let bugs eat the flesh off them. And so they have this kind of, it's, it's like a giant walk-in refrigerator, except it's warm in there because the bugs like it that way. And they wait till the matter is quite desiccated and then they bring it in in boxes and they put it on the floor. And it just reminded me of seeing my son's high school football team on buffet night. <laughs> but you also get to, like, there's a, there was a mystery about, I'm not going to spoil anything, something happened to the horse and it's, in the bone structure. And it's, and it's unclear what it was. So I got to call up vets in England and in Australia and in America, and they, they get really interested in the problem. And so one of them took his portable ultrasound to the Museum of the Horse in Kentucky and, and ultrasounded the skeleton that's on display there to, the help first me, time. to help me figure out this thing. So it is so cool. I, I feel it's such a privilege of the job. 
That is amazing. And there's a painting involved, too, in this book. It runs through the whole book. And in addition to the skeleton, you had to look into art history, right? One painting. Finally, my art history degree. This is not an invention of yours, that there's paintings of Lexington. No, no, no. So in, the, in, the, in those days, this is pre-photography. So there's only one photograph of this horse because it was taken after the Civil War when the horse was quite elderly. But all the early paintings of the horse, all the images of the horse in, in his prime are paintings, oil paintings, mm. by the two most notable equestrian artists of the day. And they are a kind of a hybrid between art and marketing because everybody wanted to see what these famous horses look like and some people wanted to hire their stud services. And so it was important to get the anatomy absolutely perfect. So these artists were also great anatomists. So these paintings, they're not photographs. They're, in a sense, historical fiction themselves, right? Yeah, except that you know that they had to be super accurate. You're super accurate, too. <laughs> we try. Uh, I mean, I think you're crazy if you don't follow the line of fact as far as it leads because, A, it gives you the skeleton on which you can imagine a, a more um, fantastic beast, if right. you like, but you'll believe it. You'll believe the fantastic part more if I've laid in a solid skeleton. Right. Um, and, B, just because, as Mark Twain said, Fiction must be plausible, truth needn't be. So yeah. the crazy things in this novel, like when I started to write about a horse, I didn't know that the story was going to lead me to Jackson Pollock, but it does. Yeah. It does. It does. Yeah. That was a gasping moment <laughs> for me as a reader. Uh, but the back to this painting, though. When you look at that painting really closely, you learn a lot more than just the anatomy of the horse, don't you? I mean, you see all sorts of cultural information being conveyed there. Well, the interesting thing about these equestrian paintings is that they also feature the skilled black horsemen. Yes. And it became really clear really early in the story that this was not just about a racehorse. It was about the superstructure of race during the 19th century because this industry of racing that was so important to the wealth and prestige uh, of rich white dudes, basically, was built on the plundered labor of enslaved black, highly skilled horsemen. Right. And they were the trainers and they were the grooms and in many cases they were the winning jockeys. And generally speaking, in, in art of that period, if there is a black subject, it's usually somebody who's just there to make the white guys look more important. Mm -hmm. But in this case, it's the black horsemen who are being considered for their skill and for their importance. And so these portraits are very individual and they're really, they tell you a lot about the special place of these guys in, within this brutal system. That becomes the essential element of the novel. There are two incredibly endearing people at the center of this story, separated by 170 years. They're both black men. They're experts at what they do. They're working at very different times. One of them is, is Jarrett, this enslaved groom who raises and cares for Lexington in, in Kentucky in the 1850s. Now, Jarrett is a real historical figure, but little is known, right? Right, and it comes back to the paintings, because there was a painting um, that was described many times as the greatest painting by Thomas J. Scott, the artist, and it's Lexington being led out by Black Jarrett, his groom. And I tried to find out more about Jarrett, and I could find that he, he was there. He's there in the payment records mm. of the farm uh, after emancipation. The owner started paying um, uh, people, and he's also there... Not by name, but I know it's him um, because it says the darkie took Lexington from Natchez to New Orleans. So and he could travel? Yes. Well, they, the, the horsemen traveled extensively. They traveled all over the country with the horses. Yeah. So they were in, a, in an odd position for enslaved yeah. people of this time. Yeah, because usually enslaved people could not cross state lines at all. But they would have a pass... 
and uh, they would travel with the horses and, you know, they, they came north to New York with the horses and, yeah, it's extraordinary really. Also, they're allowed to hold property in their own right, which is also technically illegal. But they did, and many of them were able to purchase their own freedom in that way. Hmm. You suggest he might have been able to read and write. Do you know that, oh, or no. you projected that? I, I, wish he, I wish he had, because then we'd know more about him. Um, no, I just, I always want everybody to be able to read and yeah. write. <laughs> Do you know when he died? No, I don't know that either. So the record just trails away. Yeah, yeah, it does, unfortunately. But I, I based the character on some the fate of horsemen that was known. So what happened was uh, after the Civil War when Reconstruction kicks in and then, then the, there's the re reaction to Reconstruction and that, at that point all these ex incredibly skilled uh, black men were forced out of the industry. The, the jockeys first, they, their lives were put at risk by white jockeys who would gang up against them on the track and try and kill them. Um, and then the trainers were relegated to much lowlier roles. Uh, and many, many um, of, of the most esteemed people in the field had to leave the country in order to pursue their job. Oh, my gosh. The other black man at the center of this book is a, a man named Theo. He's a graduate student in Washington, D.C., working on a Ph.D. in art history. Where does Theo come from? Do you have a record of him? <laughs> No, but I, I realized that if I was going to be looking at race in the 19th century, I couldn't just leave it there. If the, if, the, if the book is going to have a contemporary thread, which it was because I was so fascinated by the science and the work at the Smithsonian, I wanted to write about that. I couldn't leave out the story of blackness as if it was something over and done with that we don't have to bother our pretty heads about anymore because obviously that story is not over and particularly as I was writing this book the noise around that story was incredibly loud as we had one after another after another tragic incident with George, George Floyd and Ahmed Arbery and all the, all the um, tensions around the rise of white supremacy. So that had to echo and reverberate in the contemporary novel. So I'd have to have a character who is going to carry that weight. And I thought, let's make him as complicated as we possibly can. <laughs> I think very beautifully done. Jarrett is, to go back to Jarrett, or to keep comparing these two men, Jarrett is working in a system that gives him a semblance of respect a semblance of authority. Actually, they were respect. You can tell. It's really weird because if you read a lot of um, enslavers' letters, you don't get a lot of respect for their enslaved people. You get a lot of um, making them out as buffoons or mm. complaining. Uh, you know, just no respect at all. But the horsemen, yes, the, mm. they defer to the they defer to the skills of these men. So they did have a very respected. It's in the whole impossibly weird system of slavery, it was a particularly weird position for him to be in, though, because he is, he is chattel, just like Lexington. That's right. Legally. Yeah, and you, and you get that. You look at the paintings, and the titles of the paintings can be very confronting because it will name the horse. It'll be like Viley, who was a white, um, uh, I don't know, semi-aristocratic horse owner. Viley's Harry, Charles, and Lou... So the slaves and the horse will all be named as the possessions of Viley. Right, right. That, that weird position that he's in, that Jarrett's in, that he tries to negotiate throughout the novel is so heartrending. Mm -hmm. That's not a question, sorry. It's just <laughs> yeah, well, I, so know. moving. And in, in 2019, you've got Theo, who would seem to have it all, right? I mean, he's, he's brilliant. He's from a well-off family. He's got a great mind, a great character. And yet he, too, is, is dealing with a, a society that's not being entirely candid about his rights and his positions and his safety. Well, this comes, you know, I'm, I'm really lucky that I've lived on Martha's Vineyard now since '05, And Martha's Vineyard has a very vibrant uh, black community and has for 150 years. Mm. And it's a, it's a pretty privileged community, you know, it's um, not unlike this place. <laughs> um, you know, but the, the people, um, 
one thing I've learned from my black friends on Martha's Vineyard that there's no amount of wealth or privilege or education or even celebrity is entirely going to protect you if you have black skin in this country. And every single one of my friends has a story of experiences that are humiliating or terrifying. And I think, you know, you all might be familiar with one of those stories. Um, Henry Louis Gates, Harvard professor, television presenter, dragged off his own front porch in handcuffs yeah. for the crime of being a black man trying to open his front door. Yeah. And my friend who's a very well-known screenwriter, she was pulled out of her car and made to sit in a filthy gutter because a racist cop didn't think a black woman would have such a fancy car. You know, so that's that's what um, yeah. that's what Theo experiences too. There's been a debate in this country for the last few years, sometimes illuminating, sometimes not, about appropriation, mm. about the challenges and responsibilities of writing from minority perspectives. Early in your novel, Theo alludes to Frederick Douglass's complaint that, quote, no true portraits of Africans by white artists existed, that white artists couldn't see past their own ingrained stereotypes of blackness, unquote. That is exactly the challenge you set out for yourself in this book. How yeah. did you, how did, you were certainly self-conscious about it. How did you go about doing it? I was really terrified. To be absolutely honest, you know, I realized, as I said, very, very early that black characters are integral to the story of Lexington's success. And at that point, it's, it's, a, it's a turning point for me. So do I go ahead into this threshing machine of white woman writing about black lives? Or do I center the novel on the white owners, who are very interesting characters? And that was a way to go, but it just seemed like it was an unconscionable way to go to me because it would erase the contribution of the black horseman again. So I couldn't do it. I thought if you're going to write this book, you're going to have to just do the best you can and do the work. And tell and, us about the work. Well, the work in the historical section rests very heavily on the shoulders of real historians who have done amazing um, excavations into the records of enslavement. And there were several sources which I've cited in the back of the book that I relied on heavily, particularly because this is something that's still, you know, it's, it's only recently been explored, the contribution of the Black Horsemen, and a lot of really great research is happening right now. And so I had to be on top of what, what is being uncovered as, as people start to look more closely for the records of these men, and, their, and they are all men, of course, and their contributions. Um, and then for the contemporary section, which in some ways is even more fraught, um, I just relied on the patience and goodwill of black friends who shared their lived experience with me. Mm. And there's nothing more trying for a black person than explaining racism, their own racism to a white person, but people were incredibly generous with reading, talking about their experiences and then reading drafts and saying, that's bullshit. Mm. <laughs> That's hard to hear at first, but I guess you're no, grateful no, for it. No, it wasn't hard to hear. It was, you know, and, and uh, you know, uh, I learned a lot, and we all have a lot to learn. Could you give us a sense of the physical logistics of writing a story this complex? I mean, I'm thinking of something like Carrie Matheson in Homeland with a wall covered <laughs> in post-it notes and string, you know. Uh, what, what does it take to keep three stories going like this yeah. in your own mind. Yeah, well, it took me a long time to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I, and, and I'm not Carrie Matheson. I, I'm not very organized. I tend to be very instinctive um, because I didn't set out to be a novelist and I didn't you know, have the advantage of working with wonderful novelists and learning craft from them. And it's always just been a sort of a feeling your way, feeling your way and you know, building your wall stone by stone. And the good thing, so I, split narratives are a challenge because the risk is you'll have one that's engaging and one that's really dull. Right. <laughs> and you'll lose your reader in between. 
Um, but they, they have this benefit, which is if you get stuck in one narrative, you can turn to the <laughs> other one. <laughs> so you're not going to tell us the secret, are you? There's no... It's, it, okay, the secret is put your bum in the chair every day and go to work like everybody else has to. <laughs> and don't give me any of this stuff about writer's block because... Investment bankers don't get a block. <laughs> you know, um, hairdressers don't have hairdressers block. You go to work, you do your job, and this is my job. So I go and do it. And you can't do it very well every day. Um, but there's something that a friend who's a sculptor said that I love because it's, um, it's so true and, and reassuring. Um, sculptor's name is Sarah Z, and she does these fantastic works. And there was a profile of her in The New Yorker. And they said, ask her to describe her process. And she said, my process is mess, 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 mess art. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that because you can't make art every day, but you can make a mess every day. And there's no excuse not to go to your desk and make that mess. And then you've got something to work with. That's, that's a journalist talking. You had to write. I mean, oh, there yeah, was a deadline. That, that too. Yeah, you yeah. just can't tell your editor you don't feel like it. You can't wait for your aura to be on straight. No, you no. can't call up. I can just imagine calling Karen Elliott House at the Wall Street Journal yeah. and saying, I can't file about Gaza today because the muse is unarriving. Yeah, it's just not, <laughs> not going to go. Not going to go. I'm, I'm curious about, you've written about the Civil War brilliantly in March and then again in this novel. And I wonder how somebody raised in Australia, I mean, you didn't grow up with the persistent myths of the Civil War that I did. Uh, how you came to the Civil War and how that might shape your understanding of it differently. <laughs> I came to the Civil War because my late husband was a Civil War bore. <laughs> <laughs> Not true. Uh, no, well... Not entirely true. Well, he wasn't a bore. No. No, no, but, well, he, he was obsessed. Yes. And I didn't... So, we get married... We, go we get married in France, we go immediately to Australia, then we go to Cairo, then we go to London. The Civil War doesn't come up a lot. <laughs> and then we move back to Virginia. Yes. Civil War, the saying goes, was fought in 10,000 places. And it soon becomes very clear to me that he is going to take me to every single one of them. <laughs> <laughs> And I had to find a way to connect with it. I was gonna, you know, I, I couldn't just sit in the car. <laughs> <laughs> Can you give us a sense of the conversation at the dinner table about the way you two approach the Civil War in, in your writing? Oh, so, you know, it started out like, could you get rid of all those books that are cluttering up the, how many volumes do we need on this thing? Uh, to, could you bring me that volume about, you know, but it was, it was, it was around the time of uh, writing March because I did find a way to connect with it and that was a fascination with what happens to people who go to war because they're motivated by an ideal. And in the case of the Civil War, there were a lot of people motivated by the ideal of abolition and, um, and our town in Virginia was unusual. It was founded by Quakers in yeah. 1733. Abolitionists. Very much so and also, you know, Underground Railroad and um, a haven for free blacks because in those days if you were emancipated you were supposed to leave the state of Virginia, mm -hmm. the Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, but Waterford was a safe haven and then when the Civil War happened some of the young men of the Quaker community felt that slavery was a worse evil than violence and they took up arms and got themselves read out of Quaker meeting and they went to war. And I thought about what it was like to be them because you can go with the highest of ideals, but you will have to do things that are very depraved. And what happens to idealists in that situation? So that was the, that was the origin of March because I realized that there was this perfect found object into which to um, deposit this investigation, which was the absent father and little women. Mm -hmm. And he's gone to be a chaplain to the Union troops because of his ardent abolitionism. So... This is a brilliant novel, not a work of cultural criticism, not an op-ed, but it does very much reflect on our current moment. And I wonder if you could talk for a moment about this strange era in which teaching the history of black Americans, teaching about systemic racism is in some states being ruled illegal. This is, it's, it's crazy. 
It's it's absolutely crazy, and I I can only cite Eleanor Roosevelt, who said, "Learn your history, learn the truth. It will make you love your country more." What are people so afraid of? You have to you have to have an honest appraisal of the past, or you can't possibly understand where we are and where we need to get to. Would you take some questions from the oh, audience? Oh, yes, please. That's my favorite bit. There are... <laughs> not... not, not There are two microphones. Uh, there's one there and there's one there. Would you please come to the microphone and, and state your question so that everyone here and people listening uh, on the web can hear. Yes, ma'am. Hi. How long ago did you finish the book? And can you talk about what it's like to go and talk about th something you finished a while ago and what you're working on now? Oh, boy. <laughs> That's a lot to unpack. Um, so you never really finish a book. The, the trouble is your publishers just come and grab it from your cold, dead hands. <laughs> but, you know, you're revising it to the last possible moment and there's always something better that you could be doing to make it better. Um, but then there's, there is this kind of, you know, wonky period when it's gone out of your hands and you've done the, the very final, final line edit on the galley copy and you can't change it again. And then there's about six months before it comes out. And that's a really scary period. And you try and find something to distract yourself with. <laughs> uh, but, um, it, yeah, it took, a, it took a long time to write, not only because it was a very complicated story, but my, my life exploded in the middle of this book when Tony died suddenly. And uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't write or think about writing for more than a year. So when I finally crawled back to the desk, I realized that actually I had to finish this book because he loved this project so much and he had helped me with it so much. He, he being a real historian uh, and a great archive diver would be bringing me these you know, newspaper articles that were relevant. And we actually traveled together because we had an overlapping um, period that we were looking at, he was following the, the trail of Frederick Law Olmsted through the South um, just before the Civil War, when Frederick Law Olmsted didn't know he was going to be a landscape designer, he was still a newspaper reporter and he was sent South to talk about the divisions in the country. Um, and so Tony decided that at this other point in our history of great division, he would retrace Olmsted's journey and it turned out that Olmsted actually met a lot of people who were involved with Lexington in Kentucky so we had a great trip so anyway I had to finish the book so I could dedicate it to Tony and I realized that once I started that work was going to save me actually that was the lifeboat that I crawled into and you asked me what I'm working on now uh, I'm working on a short memoir it's just it's kind of an essay really about what happened when Tony died and how um, our society really is absolutely set up to crush people in that moment when they need to be supported Sorry. Hmm. a real fun read <laughs> And then I've got another historical novel, but I'm not going to talk about that yet because it's too far away. But I'll tell you that it involves... Um, I'm going to go and be a visiting fellow at New College at Oxford to do some research on it. And I love... Every time I say New College, it makes me smile because it was new in the 14th century. <laughs> a comment and a question. The passage specifically, or the chapter where Jarrett takes the old blind horse out basically across country to rescue him from the troops that are coming to steal him. It was beautifully, beautifully done. I'm an equine veterinarian, and very few people understand the nuances of 
dealing with a horse who is blind and how much they can see. How did you arrive at all this? Did you have a, you know, a mentor or someone who said, here, take my blind horse and see what happens? <laughs> <laughs> so you're exactly the kind of person that I leaned on very heavily for this. So there were uh, four veterinarians who helped me with this book, helped me understand. And then uh, I volunteer in a... Um, in a program, uh, equine therapeutic program. My, my bit of it, my horse and I do uh, work with children who have autism. Um, but through that program, I've learned a lot about uh, all kinds of um, ways of using horses in therapy. And um, blind horses are, are fantastic because they do adapt if they're loved and cared for and if they're given time uh, and, and handled properly. And then they, in turn, can model what is possible when you've lost something but you gain something else. And so the role of, of blind horses in equine therapeutics is really critical. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> When you ask the question of why people would be banning books, etc., like why are we doing this as a society, it reminded me of Wendell Berry's uh, book, Hidden Wound. And I was wondering if you had some inspiration from a Kentuckian um, Wendell Berry. And also, I was really curious what surprised you or um, inspired you from yesterday with the high school students. And thank you for going there. Uh, one teacher told me, and she was so excited. Uh, uh, the, the kids here are. Um Incredibly well prepared. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful school. I mean, I wish every high school in America was as beautiful as that school. And I have to say the teachers are incredibly glamorous too. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at these people and they're obviously all very outdoorsy and, and, and terrific. And I, I'm like, my teachers didn't look like that. <laughs> But um, the kids, the kids who just, you know, they're great. They're, they're always a little bit shy. Adolescents are a little bit shy. But they were, they were totally engaged. And, um, and I just thought that the caliber of what's going on there is really uh, inspirational. And Wendell Berry is one of my favorites because, um, you know, my, my greatest concern is um, what we're doing to biodiversity and leaving room for everything that's not us. We're not very good at it. And he is, he is the great prophet of protecting our environment, not even for ourselves, but yes, for ourselves, because it'll be very lonely here, you know. If we, if we don't cut out the way we're behaving, if we don't stop these mass extinctions, we're going to be all alone and then we're going to be gone. So, you know, and, and Wendell Berry's been talking about that for decades. My book club thoroughly enjoyed Horse, and we were so impressed with the quality of the language and how Jared and his dad and all the Southerners just seemed so spot on. You know, it felt like you were really there. Just wondering how that all came about, how much research you had to do to get that language just right. It's very important to me. Um, thanks for asking about that, because it's something that uh, I think it's crucial. Um, if I use the wrong diction for a character, if I use the wrong vocabulary, I think it pulls you out of the narrative. So it's very important to me that I can hear the voices of the people as they would have sounded. And so that can be quite um, challenging when you're trying to do the voices of enslaved people because of course they didn't get to speak for themselves very often on the record. Of course, there are some notable exceptions, and I relied very heavily on Frederick Douglass's many autobiographies and um, narratives like Harriet Ann Jacobs. But also, there's, uh, I, I use the resource, which is the um, recorded voices of formerly enslaved people uh, that were um, uh, captured in interviews during the Relief and Works project. 
And, you know, that's a, it's a slightly, it's not an al analogous, but you could get a lot of sense of the rhythms and the figures of speech that people used. And also, it's fun with racing because there's so many expressions that we use that we don't realize or I didn't realize came from racing, like winning hands down. That means you didn't have to raise the whip to the horse. Um, a shoe in. That's when the race is fixed by the jockeys and they've decided which, which jockey will win, so they shoe him in. <laughs> uh, so I love that stuff. That, that finding that sort of thing gets me up in the morning. And, um, uh, and, you know, and so sometimes you can get it through letters and journals and sometimes you can't. And if there's a word like in Caleb's Crossing, I had a character and I needed her to talk about a fetus, but I'm pretty sure that in 1665 she's not using the word fetus. So then I rely on the Oxford Historical Thesaurus of the English Language, which is a really fun reference work. Every word in the language, they have the word that was used all the way back down to early Icelandic. <laughs> and so you can take fetus and you can go to mid-17th century and you find that the word she would have used is shapeling. Yeah. Since you're talking about language, could you talk about the audiobook, which I listen to, and is beautiful? It's wonderful, isn't it? So they really pushed the boat out on this one. <laughs> they got different uh, actors to voice the different sections of the book, and they actually got a British Nigerian to voice Theo, and an Australian for Jess, and a beautiful um, black voice actor to do Jarrett. And I think it's really, it's wonderful because it would have been, I think, hard to follow if it was just the one, no matter how good of a reader. Yeah. Superb. Oh, yes. Hi. Um, I actually don't have a question. A fun piece of trivia for everyone tonight that uh, actually Dr. Elijah Warfield's great, 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 great grandson is in the audience tonight. Is uh, what? His Sorry? name is uh, Thomas Warfield Kincaid. I'm sorry, and I can't hear you very is, well. Could you? Oh, this is the family's book. Ah. Lexington was his great, 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 great grandfather's horse. <laughs> so I just thought that was a fun piece of trivia that you have someone from the Warfield family in the audience tonight. That is so great. Yeah. That is wonderful. Okay. I've, actually, I've actually met descendants of a number of people who are in really? the book. Yes. And some of them are descendants of the Black Horsemen. And they're engaged in researching their family to try and find out more about their forebear's life. Oh, it's fascinating. Yeah. Thank you so much for this conversation. It was just wonderful to talk to you. Geraldine Brooks is a novelist and the author of the Pulitzer Prize winning novel, March. Born and raised in Australia, Brooks is a former journalist for the Wall Street Journal who covered crises in the Middle East, Africa, and the Balkans. Her most recent work, Horse, is a sweeping tale of spirit, obsession, and injustice across American history. Ron Charles is a book critic at the Washington Post. Previously, he edited the book section of the Christian Science Monitor in Boston and taught American literature and critical theory in the Midwest. If you were inspired by this conversation, we invite you to experience the Aspen Ideas Festival in person this June. Buy your pass today at aspenideas.org. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Words team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening.